Film Club Week in Review Podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, the greatest living American writer, your friend, your enemy. www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and films and streaming TV. Coming up this week, we have a review of the new Netflix show about academia, The Chair. And I'm playing this song by Sammy Davis Jr. because we're going to talk to film critic Stephen Garrett about Candyman, the reboot of the early 90s horror franchise. But first up, let's talk to Lily Moyeri about young adult books a subject she knows quite a lot about. Welcome to the show. Book and Film Globe contributor Lily Moyeri is here, joining us to talk about a piece that she wrote this week about, uh, she's criticizing the Time 100 list of top young adult books. And she had some interesting things to say about that and compiled her own list of of things that she thinks uh, young adult readers actually want to read. Lily, hello, how are you? Good, how are you? Thank you I'm for good. having me again. <laughs> yeah, of course, always. So I, I, loved, I loved your piece because, well, first of all, you're, you're a journalist, but you're also a, a teacher, a school teacher, and a, and a librarian in Los Angeles, right? That I am, yes. So for the last 10 years, I've been a teacher librarian in LA Unified School District, and for seven years before that, Eight years before? No, seven years. I'm in my 11th year. It's hard to keep track. Ten years in the library and seven years just around young adults and seeing what they read and reading what they read. And I'm a big fan of young adults. I always have been, even when it wasn't my job. I never really stopped reading young adult books. And uh, when I was much younger, I was reading them when I was in elementary school, really. So it's I, it's a really an area of literature that I, I really love and I feel really passionately about. You had some interesting observations about the time list, which was put together by young adult authors and people who obviously uh, have good taste in books and you didn't argue with their taste. But the thing you say in the piece is, a lot of the books they picked aren't what young adult readers, teen readers, tween readers are actually into these days. Well, I mean, um, their list, I mean, the more recent you go in their list, because I, I believe it's chronological. So the more recent stuff, uh, I think, is a little bit closer to the mark. Um, but the older stuff, I was like, the kids do not read that. I cannot in any way convince them to read this stuff. Um, but I love those books. I mean, uh, Tree Grows in Brooklyn is a beautiful, beautiful book. And I'm a really good book talker with my students and the book talk will get them to at least give it a shot, but they 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 can't get through a, a tree grows in Brooklyn. And Little Women, which is like the first book on the thing, I was like, okay, yes, Little Women is a classic, but I actually reread it last last year, like before the pandemic, I reread it. And I put it in the hands of one of our students who is a big reader, you know, her literacy is extremely high and she's really open to stuff. 
But I noticed that the book that I had in the library, the copy of Little Women I have, has all these illustrations and definitions so that everything is put in context. And I told her to make sure to read those as she's reading the book, because otherwise you don't know what they're talking about. It is none of that carries over to today. And we were, her and I were just talking about this yesterday or last week where she was saying, yeah, last week, where she, where I said, remember when you read that and remember the little description? She's like, I wouldn't have been able to get through that book without it. It was very, very helpful. So yes, Little Women is beautiful literature, classic, all that. <laughs> little Women today will not read Little Women. Well, when you pitched the article to me, you mentioned Charlotte's Web as being something people weren't reading. And I, I, I had to gasp. I was like, no, not Charlotte's Web. No, that couldn't be dated. There's no way Char it could be dated. And you're like, look, I love Charlotte's Web, but, you know, that's not what the kids are into. No, it wasn't so much. Uh, that was more like an age thing. Because um, I don't, you know, I'm not in elementary, so I don't know if they're reading Charlotte's Web or not. But what I was saying is Charlotte's Web is not on this list, but it was on another list, I think, uh, maybe a previous time list. And I was like, how is Charlotte's Web a young adult book? It's just that, you know, when you say YA, that's a very specific age group. Um, and it is, you know, they, when you have a YA book, it can be a little bit, it can have more adult content in it. And it's really aiming at students that are like eighth grade and above. And so Charlotte's Web is, is, a, is a children's book and you can't just like throw it in there because you love it and it's a classic and kids read it. It's, I guess, kids read it, but young adults as much as they love Charlotte's Web, they've, they've moved on from Charlotte's Web as far as current books in their life that relate to what they're going through right now. I, I love what you put at the beginning of the piece, too, which is that young adult readers don't respond to books with certain typefaces or yellowing pages or lettering that's too bubbly. I, there's all kinds of things you mentioned. I thought that was really interesting. It's just like a... like. If I put, uh, let's say, The Outsiders, they love The Outsiders. But if I give them a copy of The Outsiders uh, that is an older copy, they don't they don't like it as much. They just they don't want to get through it in the same kind of way. I just have to give them like, you know, the 40th anniversary edition of it or something just a little that has like a more current cover, more current font, different spacing, you know, for us. Gen Xers and above, we don't even notice that the book page looks different or that the font looks different because it's all the same maybe to us. But for students, when they see that, you know, really crammed font, uh, they, it, they, they're not even used to seeing anything like that. And they don't want to read something like that. And as much as we love the smell of old books, they don't think that's such a great smell. <laughs> Maybe they, maybe maybe we were wrong. Maybe books aren't supposed to smell a certain way. So, all right. So let's talk about the books you do recommend. Like, you know, there are some classics, like you said, The Outsiders is included and you do include, you know, some of the, the trilogies that people, you know, are get into the Divergent trilogy, Twilight, Harry Potter, uh, the Rick Reardon books. All that's in there. And then you, a lot of the books you mentioned seem to be one of the things you mentioned that I thought was really interesting is that teenagers love teenagers love stories about people getting abducted. Abduction, abuse, um, suicide, um, sickness. They love that stuff. And I should 
you know, this is my disclaimer about my list. I'm not saying these are the books I like. I'm just saying these are the books that move in the library. These are not my, uh, some of them I love, some of them I can't stand. But I know that the kids like it. I know they'll read it. Um, I, you know, I didn't, you know, uh, mince any words when I said how much I hated Twilight. Um, but the kids love it. And I was just like, okay, well, if you're going to read a 400 plus page book, I'm not going to argue about what it is just because I personally don't like it. And I think it's terrible writing, but you're reading and that's all I care about. Um, now I've forgotten what your question was. Well, no, uh, the, the, the whole idea that, of the abduction, abuse, abduction, drug addiction, prostitution, rape, all that stuff. It's like teenagers, you know, I have a teenager. He's, he's mm -hmm. transitioning out of being a teenager. He's almost in his twenties now, but you know, they have an inherently melodramatic self-perception yeah. uh, and they, they have a sort of like a, a melodramatically tragic worldview. So, and you know, they have a lot of issues that they deal with. So these books kind of uh, cater to them and address and, and reflect their concerns. Well, one of the, because I, these, I, I mean, I just know this from experience, the, the list of, you know, horrors that they like. Um, and I asked one of my students yesterday when I was finalizing the list, I was like, do you prefer a book where the person is sick or a book where somebody is killing themselves? And she was like, oh, killing themselves. And I was like, why? She's like, more drama. <laughs> and I was like, okay, more drama. And then I was like, do you like Hunger Games better or Divergent? And she was like, oh, Divergent. And I said, why? She's like, more dramatic. <laughs> like, okay, it's like what you said about the melodrama. All of this stuff is dramatic. That's what they're after. They're after like a plot-filled thing. It's less character, more plot. And it's more about like, you know, the story just moving along and, you know, having all this uh, forward motion. There's a lot of popularity of LGBTQ novels. They just like it when the characters are are queer. Are queer. And I'm just like, oh, I love it. And it's not necessarily queer kids that like it. It's all kids. And I'm like, that makes me so happy. It's also something I never thought I would see. It, it's a reflective of, of the tolerant culture in which they have grown up. And yeah. these are not, this is something that they're curious about. And there's not as much inherent bigotry. Like when I was there was, there was no there was no queer literature. I mean, other you know, like I guess you could read Oscar Wilde or something if you were a teenager. There were there weren't a, like a plethora of novels about gay teen love <laughs> that wasn't available in the eighties. No, no, definitely not. Um, I don't even oh God, I don't even know if I remember reading that many like even openly gay characters. It's very few and far between, and I, I can't even off the top of my head even name you one that I read when I was a teenager. I'm just trying to think. No, they're, 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 really. I mean, unless, unless the Hardy boys were gay for each other, you know, maybe I didn't really, I didn't really, uh, that, yeah. which, which would have been weird. Uh, I didn't really encounter a lot of that in my childhood. And then of course, there's also, which we cover a lot on Book and Film Globe, there's lots and lots of content for uh, people of color, uh, mm -hmm. books about uh, black teenagers and uh, you know Latino, Latina teenagers, all, all, all of that. There's lots of that available and there's lots of that on your list as well. All right, well, Lily, your uh, students are lucky to have such a dedicated librarian to, to uh, draw upon every day. And we are lucky at Book and Film Globe to have you writing about stuff. So you have a list up this week. Uh, I, I, you have the headline handy, I don't have it handy. It's uh, I do. It's called A Realistic List of Books You Can Get Young Adults to Actually Finish.
Excellent. Well, thank you so much. And we will talk to you soon about something. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Stephen Garrett is here, back again, talking about movies with me. Hello, Stephen. Hello. Hey, all right. So this week, the long-awaited screening has occurred of uh, Nia DaCosta's remake of Candyman. And you wrote about it in on the site uh, this week. So, uh, yeah, I feel like Candyman, this is one of those movies that was just supposed to, was supposed to come out, I think, in 2017 or something, and it's been delayed by COVID a, a zillion times. Finally, they drop it at the end of August. And uh, which is usually a, a movie graveyard, but but you really liked it. Uh, I did, and I would I would uh, I I think actually August always has some interesting movies. Um, I think The Sixth Sense came out in August, didn't it? They're, the late summer releases are always sneaky because they they're almost like April releases, where a studio might say like, well, we think it's good, but we don't know how people are going to react. But let's give ourselves a wide berth, and you know, some things can really take off. Uh, in a nice way. So I think <clears throat> this late August is actually early Halloween, if you ask me. I think this is going to stick around for a while and could be, uh, you know, uh, a pretty um, pretty successful uh, kind of uh, uh, movie in terms of impacting uh, culture and stirring up uh, people uh, talking about this movie and wanting to go see it. I could tell it was going to be good from the trailer. I mean, you could see that it had a, it, you could already see that it, it had a purpose and a structure. It had the, 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 the cool cutout art, um, and I just I just felt like – I mean, I don't personally love horror movies because I find them scary. I know that's crazy, but <laughs> – but, but, but I – you know, I – but I do – but I do uh, – I did really like the original Candyman, uh, which came out, I believe, in the early 90s, and it, this seemed to me that it was a – it seemed fresh. It seemed like it was going to be a fresh take. It's been 30 years. And the Cabrini Green neighborhood in Chicago, in which Candyman takes place, Cabrini Green has been raised to the ground and replaced with luxury condos. I imagine they talk about that in the movie itself. They do. It actually starts in one of those luxury condos. And I guess I was a little confused because uh, I talked about one of the characters going back to uh, these kind of derelict remains. Um, so there must be some part of it that's still there. Yes. Um, because there is that scene in 90, that kind of mirrors what happened in, nine, in the 92 film where uh, you see it's Virginia Madsen in this case um, walking through this kind of graffiti festooned empty apartment, you know, where there's a lot of garbage and dirt. And, and you know, that's where um, she kind of encounters Candyman. And there's some of that in this, too. So the, the thing about, you know, we all know that the, the Candyman legend is if you look in the mirror and say his name five times, he appears and, and murders you. Um, and so there's this there's a sort of gory, the ring style horror where people where innocent victims, maybe not sometimes not so innocent victims, end up getting killed by this uh, this supernatural stalker. But there's also kind of the, the stories also have these uh, these tragic qualities to them where, you know, the in the original Candyman, the Virginia Mar Madsen character becomes She's like a grad student who's doing research, and she becomes possessed by him, essentially, right? And that happens. Something like that happens in this movie as well. Well, yeah, kind of. I mean, actually, I think in that first movie, and and I didn't see it when it came out. I just kind of caught up with it um, just recently, uh, the original version, and I never really thought much of it. And you know, I'm I'm I I, I think I like horror movies more than you do, but I'm not a huge horror fanatic or completist. So it really was just off my radar, and I knew about it, but I was like, this looks dumb. 
you know. So catching up with it now, I, I realized how my the error of my ways because it really is. <clears throat> it's not really uh, the kind of jump scare slasher movie that certainly I thought it was going to be. And it, it, there's there's very much this kind of dark gothic romance uh, element in the original, and it's it's almost like a fan of the opera type thing where he's kind of seducing her. Um, the uh, the original Candyman, whose uh, you know original name was you know he's kind of this 19th century aristocratic vibe you know his name Daniel Robitaille um, and you know he talks to to Helen Virginia Madsen's character and talks about how it's like you will be mine be my victim it's like he needs her it's almost like Dracula he needs her to invite him in in order to she needs to succumb in a very uh, almost voluptuous way in that movie. And there's this very kind of really creepy moment where the two of them have a deep kiss and the bees are coming out of their mouths. You know, it's like really wild. Um, but I, I like, it, it was this Gothic romance that I was not expecting and felt very appropriate. And then also hit all of those kind of racial overtones. But um, this being a movie that I, I think it, it seemed like a franchise that was embraced uh if I can, if I can kind of postulate, it seemed to have been embraced more by the black community than usual in terms of horror movies. I think mainly because it was so rare to see uh, a black character be the sort of Freddy Krueger type, um, you know, spooky monster. Um, and also, there's this, as you're saying, this tragic element to it that gives it a lot of resonance. And this new version, the Acosta's version, which uh, Jordan Peele co-wrote and produced. Um, really leans into it much more and has that playfulness that Jordan Peele has, but also that sense of uncanny, eerie, tragic, harrowing um, energy that, uh, of course, he, he brought to Get Out and to uh, us. Treating some things that we're calling this a spiritual sequel and, oh, you don't have to see the original. If, you know, you can still enjoy that. This is technically true, but watching the original and then watching this, it is so enriched to see the two together and the two you know, the sequel really deliberately refers back to that one and actually makes what I found really interesting is it's making how rare and, and usually very unsuccessful it is to have a sequel come out 30 years after the original uh, movie or its predecessor. You know, you think of like Color of Money being an example of like uh, a sequel nobody was really looking for and came out 20 years later and actually builds on it and uses its huge time gap in uh, in a really interesting way, you know. In that case, it was Paul Newman getting old. In this case, it's actually having enough distance from the original movie so that the original movie's events become myth themselves. And then suddenly it kind of lengthens and deepens the whole mythology of Candyman, you know, arguably to a fault. I mean, that's why I, I wasn't like all five stars for this one, because I, I felt like what made the first one work so well is that it did have that elegant gothic romance quality to it. I think this is much more ambitious, um, but maybe not as uh, neatly wrapped up in the, as, as the previous one was. Uh, but I this am, is, it's I just great, to... really button pushes, and is smart about it, and is also slyly funny about it, while also still maintaining its sincerity about the, how it addresses the harrowing experience and the cyclical generational trauma of you know, being a, a black American. You know, Tony Todd uh, had a lot of renown as playing the original Candyman in the, in the first movie, and I guess in the sequels, but, um, uh, and Virginia Madsen was in the first one in a really great, really interesting role that both balanced, you know, 
what it was to be the, the, the white privilege of uh, a grad student woman, you know, this kind of white woman privilege uh, going to the, the projects, but then also balances that against basically the, 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 the uh, sexual bias that, you know, this kind of academic men, uh, academia, she's married to a philandering uh, philosopher, a professor. Um, so on the one hand, she is, uh, she's just in a weird place where she's both privileged and also victimized, you know? You know, this is like, uh, this is a bit, uh, a blockbuster type movie. And she's, again, she's got a Marvel movie coming out. And so I just think that is a, um, you know, that's a, a change, uh, in, in Hollywood and, uh, you know, it could only be for the better. And I also, um, you know, I, I love that in, now it's not just Jordan Peele who's making these, you know, entertaining, uh, popular facing black horror films, right? This is like a, now this is like a genre. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a social justice horror slasher kind of movie. And I think, you know, wispy identity, you were saying, I mean, I think there is some of that in this DNA. And I think that's a, a persuasive reason why Jordan Peele might've said, you know what, let's get Nia Dacosta to do it. Uh, that said, just as a film itself, um, it is so self-assured in terms of the cinematography and the way the camera is placed and certain set pieces, certain scenes, like Anthony goes into an elevator at one point that's all mirrored and it suddenly feels like a Giallo movie and there's a creep, you know, there's a creepy encounter with Candyman in that because, of course, he's looking in mirrors. I am kind of curious to see what she brings also to the, the Marvels, uh, the Marvel universe. The Marvels is the sequel she's doing for Captain Marvel, apparently. Um, but you know, it's the same thing about Chloe Zhao doing the Eternals, you know? Um, and, and, you know, uh, like all these indie, uh, filmmakers or filmmakers from the indie world who get hired to do, you know, it's like Ryan Coogler, you know, these guys that, uh, Marvel kind of takes a bet on. And, and I think they're going to get paid. All the, all that matters is that they're going to get, get paid. <laughs> Maybe not as much as you think. Cause you know, those guys are pretty, uh, you know, tight with money as Scarlett Johansson is. But, uh, no, I mean, I think uh, it's a case of, I mean, somebody once told me whether it's true or not, uh, but I do want to believe it that like Kevin Feige or, or one of those guys was basically reassuring one of these indie filmmakers and being like, yeah, the action scenes, we'll take care of that. We'll direct those parts. We just need you to like work on the characters and make them interesting and compelling and vulnerable and, and fun, you know? Yeah. Um, so, hey, amen, man, you know, because those action scenes do feel a little cookie cutter. Um, but Nia Dacosta, man, I, I agree. I can't wait to see what more she comes up with. And it's a real leap to go from a small little uh, movie like uh, Littlewoods to to uh, Candyman, genre, crazy, big budget studio, or bigger budget, rather, and then, uh, and then Marvel. All right, Candyman out now in theaters. Check it out. Steven, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Talk later. All right. This is the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am your editor-in-chief, Neil Pollack, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We're going to pivot to the television section of our show now. We're going to talk to Book and Film Globe contributor G.L. Ford. I refer to him as Greg because I've known him for a long time, and he was Greg when I knew him back then, so don't get confused. Uh, Greg, or G.L., reviewed a hit Netflix show this week called The Chair. It's a kind of a farce, drama, drama farce about the goings-on in an English department in an exclusive 
Ivy League-like college, and uh, it, it's been a big hit, and it's been very triggering for academics across the board online. Greg, hello. Hey, Neil. How's it going? It's going great. So you liked the show a lot. A lot of people seem to be responding to it. It's it's very popular. Uh, surprising that a show about academia is this popular and not just with academics, but uh, it seems to be hitting a, a nerve. Well, first of all, I think it's got Sandra Oh in it, and she has developed, I think, quite a following of her own with Killing Eve, especially. I think that really was a big breakout for her. Uh, so she has, you know, a bunch of loyal fans. I mean, I consider myself one of them. So I was going to give it a try one way or another. You know, I uh, have a lot of Facebook friends who are in academia one way or another. Some of them are poets, some of them who just happen to work in, you know, MFA programs or whatnot. Some of them are scholars of religion or anthropology. And there's been a lot of conversation on the message boards about it. Um, you put the word triggering in the headline, and uh, that is indeed a word I saw in one of the conversations. Uh, they find it hits a little too close to home. And uh, I thought it was pretty funny, actually, but I guess they didn't. It's a drama, a comedy, dramedy, I don't know what it is, but it's about departmental politics. I mean... And I, it sounds to me like they they get the details right there. And, but what you responded to uh, even more positively were you thought the uh, the writing was really good and that the interpersonal relationships in the show felt uh, realistic to you. Yeah, I thought it was very well done. The family, Sandra Oh is uh, Korean. She has a Korean father who's quite elderly in the program, and she has an adopted daughter who is, I believe I read somewhere that the daughter was supposed to be Filipina, although everyone was presuming she was Mexican. So it's a you know, transracial, transethnic adoption, which you know causes a little tension in Sandra and her character's um, Korean community, although very mild, just some old Korean ladies uh, talking trash a little. Um, but yes, the, the family dynamic was pretty fascinating to see. You know, they gave the writers, they gave the, the daughter, she's kind of a troubled kid, they gave her some one-liner zingers that were just a little too pat, but they were still pretty funny. Uh, but it's really, I don't know, um, the show ultimately is about how she can keep her family together and be true to her principles in navigating these terrible politics where she's um, supposed to do something about this very popular professor in her department who, you know, she plays the chair of the English department and he, uh, I don't know, is goofing around one day and does this uh, Heil Hitler and uh, that gets spread all over social media and the students are then calling for his head because it's just inappropriate, no matter, even if you're joking. It's, taken, um, it's all taken from, you know, derived from headlines. I mean, you have professor after professor. I mean, they make a joke out of it. Professor's getting canceled. 
because they they say something that students don't agree with. And then you have the fact you, this professor played by Jay Duplass uh, has an alcohol problem. I, I don't know if there's, there's no sexual impropriety implied in the show, no, though. No, certainly not. Well, I believe um, there are some worries about it because there's, there's, there's one student who I believe is a trustee's daughter who uh, shows a lot of interest in him, but it, in the end, no, there's nothing of the sort. Uh, but, you know, the, the show's creators are the actor Amanda Peet and Annie Julia Wyman, who did a PhD at Harvard. So, you know, Wyman, she must know all about the politics of an English department. So I'm not sure how she met up with Amanda Peet and got this together, but, you know, she's definitely got it down. I saw one thing in a Facebook thread. Why are there no adjuncts? And my guess is just they probably wrote them in to begin with, but it just got too too much. You know, it's eight half hour shows. So, you know, they couldn't work every little detail in. Maybe season two will, of the chair will be about the struggles of adjunct uh, college teachers. They 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 really face they face issues that that uh, they wish they had the problems of a department chair, right? Exactly. Exactly. Well, all right. Well, listen. It's a uh, the chair uh, is on Netflix. It uh, it's kind of a surprise hit. One of those shows that comes up and you don't hear a lot about it, and then all of a sudden there it is. And who knows? You never know. You really never know what's gonna what's gonna take off. Like I didn't expect the Queen's Gambit to be a huge hit. That's a show about chess. Yeah. You know, and now he, and now we have a show about a you know a Korean American English professor that is widely popular. You never can predict anything. That's what they say about Hollywood. You never know what's gonna be a hit. Well, and this one, it's a lot of fun. So you know, if you haven't watched it, I, I think you should. All right. GL Ford, Greg Ford, Gregory Ford, Mr. Ford, thank you so much. We will talk to you soon. Neil, take care. Thanks to GL Ford for that review of the chair and the conversation about it. Also, thanks to Stephen Garrett for talking to me about Candyman and to Lily Moyeri, who is a teacher librarian and knows more about young adult books than any of us can ever learn. A lot about uh, teachers this week and a lot about books. Let's go with uh, Van Halen's Hot for Teacher, one of my favorite numbers from my youth. A song that has no problematic associations whatsoever. So we'll listen to it and enjoy it. I hope you enjoy your week. I hope you enjoy lots of good books and films and streaming TV. I'm Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe. Please check it out. We sure appreciate it. Bye-bye. value books and films and good TV. But now, during a pandemic, I appreciate them, I need them, more than ever. 
That's why I read Book and Film Globe. Bookandfilmglobe.com is the smartest, sharpest commentary about what's good and what's um, not good in the worlds of books, movies, and quality TV. This isn't celebrity gossip, and it's not for woke 22-year-olds. It's just smart, clear writing about the best new things to watch and read. Interviews with directors, concise reviews of hot new books, actors describing classic scenes, it's all on bookandfilmglobe.com. And there are three Rotten Tomatoes certified reviewers, so you know you're getting good advice. Check out Book and Film Globe. That's bookandfilmglobe.com. <laughs>